0: You are listening to the Seattle Creative Show. This episode was recorded in the winter of 2020 with Tesla Viin Sauerhoff and Felix Chang, senior staff of the Pioneer Square-based Design Practice Artifact on intentionality, outcomes, and shared space. Well welcome, welcome to this episode of the Seattle Creative Show. I would I would love to hear the story of, of how you ended up at Artifact and kind of where where in your careers are you and why is, why is Artifact kind of the, the perfect place for
1: that? Go for it, Felix. Perfect. Well, thanks so much, Johnny, for having us. We're really excited to be here. Uh, once again, my name is Felix and I'm a strategy director at Artifact. And I originally come from a cognitive psychology background and thought about being a psychologist for a while. And one of the final conversations I had with my college advisor, actually, was he asked me, you know, what are you going to do with your career? Um, Are you going to just work at a job or are you going to do work that supports people? And at the time I was like, ah, but then it's actually been something that's really stuck with me. And I've been thinking a lot about how through my work I can support people and What I think is nice about psychology and being a psychologist is you're able to have really rich one-on-one interactions with people and really learn about their experiences. But then as I continue to think about ways that I can support more than just people on a one-on-one context, um, that's how I found design as an industry and user experience design specifically, thinking about ways that Um, For anything that you are creating um, with communities, ideally, Um, you're able to understand the range of people who might engage with what you're creating, um, really try to understand their needs, and then also really trying to hold yourself accountable um, and really making sure that you're engaging them in your work process. So that was something that really drew me to design and design research. And um, from there, I worked in-house for a while at IBM, and then I transitioned to Artifact, and it's been a great ride since
2: I'm Tessa, Senior Account Director at Artifact. I've been in the agency consulting space for almost 15 years. I did a lot of time and more standard sort of brand strategy, marketing communications, then a bit of grad school. So I did my MBA with a focus on sustainable business and then um, was more recently at Digital Kitchen, where I uh, started and led our social impact practice, which was working with big companies thinking about their um, sustainability or social impact programs and how those translate into metrics, but also sort of branded experiences. And while at DK, I got invited to come chat with Artifact about what an account practice might look like at Artifact. It was not something that had existed previously. Through Dave Miller, I came and spent a lot of time chatting with everyone and made really clear, like, oh, you know, I'm not looking for a job. I love my job, but I'm happy to talk to you guys. You guys are so great. And at the end of it, got a job. So I've been at Artifact about four years. I'm sort of a a different breed than everybody else there. I um, have a background in art history and gender studies. I did my master's in business. I'm not a designer, but I've been in the design world for for all of my career, practically. Yeah.
0: Nice. So Artifact was founded in 2006. And I guess just to go off off what you're saying, Mm -hmm. there was no account program happening or what was the, what was the structure then and kind of how did they get to the structure today?
2: I mean, I think one of the sort of hallmarks of, of the artifact experience has been that we have these amazing practitioners who both lead programs as well as actually do the work. Lead teams are in the weeds with the projects. They're sort of able to directly talk about the work that we're doing because they're doing it. But along the way, we realized that this was putting a lot of pressure on leads. And and, you know, candidly, we were sort of looking for these unicorns who could do everything. (laughs) And that we weren't, we didn't really have folks that were specifically focused on our clients' business and on the relationships that we develop with them. And and um, keeping in touch with them, making sure we're bringing them value um, and sort of being what we call a trusted advisor to them. So that's when I was brought in to sort of help the organization do some of that, but also sort of train up that muscle in the organization a little bit too.
0: And can one of you kind of tell me more about what is, what does Artifact look like today? Because I know that it started out, I guess in my mind, I have this perception that it started out as industrial design, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. really, really it's, Maybe it's just because that's those were the people that I knew that were there. Yeah, right. But it's, it's this kind of holistic interaction design from every perspective. Can you uh, can you tell me more about that?
2: Felix, you're the one doing it. <laughs> uh,
1: I think artifacts practice has definitely evolved over the years. I think traditionally we have had really strong industrial design practice. Um, and I think a lot of our work historically focused on the intersection between physical and digital right? making sure that we're thinking of both the intended positive outcomes, as well as the unintended um, potential consequences that design might bring, and designing against them by acknowledging and really thinking intentionally about what are risks that we might create through our technology, as well as through our active design, um, what who we might be excluding unintentionally, and then by really mm-hmm. highlighting that, we can then prevent that. Hopefully,
0: yeah. Was there kind of a turning point when when Artifact said, "I'm." I need like we need to go this direction as mm-hmm. a practice.
2: I mean, I'd say when when I came on uh, maybe four four years ago, four or five years ago, there were a uh, part of the conversations we were having were okay. How do we how do we use design for good? Right, like we. We are inside the machinations of making products and services and systems for people and how do we how do we use our powers to sort of build this more equitable sustainable world that we want? Um, and I think that that conversation has evolved internally at artifact over the last couple of years from, Sort of okay we are human-centered design practitioners to we practice something called outcomes focused design to really what we do is responsible design like Felix was saying like you know it may not be the 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 core seed of every program but we try to get it in there right like if it's not explicitly what we're doing we're sort of um behind the scenes trying to ask some of those questions of our clients or push them in certain in certain ways to think about implications, think about the power that they have so I, it's, it's been an evolution over the last couple of years. We're certainly not fully really evolved.
0: <laughs> yes. You don't just wake up one day necessarily? No. <laughs> I mean, is that, is that kind of a risk to push clients in a, in a more responsible direction? Or, or have you seen them push back at all? Sure.
1: That's a great question. I would say overall, I feel like clients that I've worked with have been really open and receptive to it. I think that they see the conversation that's going on in industry. And at the same time, I think over the past few years, we've really seen, I feel like, the level of design capacity and talent in-house really increase a lot to where you have so many tech companies, whether it's Salesforce, Google, Facebook, having really established design practices with awesome designers. And so I think part of it is, Whenever you have lots of designers clustered in a place um, where they're able to think and share ideas, um, they're really pushing themselves to think about how they can expand their craft. And so you have a lot of senior practitioners thinking really intentionally and reflectively about their craft, um, which also leads them to the conclusion that, hey, we do need to take a step back and think about what it is to think through the consequences of our work and how we can make it uh, more ethical and responsible. And so I personally have seen, I think, a lot of interest whenever um, we bring up ideas with clients. They're really receptive, usually. And so we're able to learn from those organizations with deep expertise in terms of how they're tackling ethical issues. And they're also able to learn from us looking at our experiences working with organizations across sectors, learning analogous trends, And um, from there, I think it really helps to build everyone's capacity. As a design firm, we're also able to help um, them communicate their findings and their point of view and perspectives as one of our expertises in communication design. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we've ever had a client say like, nope, not interested. But, But our clients are definitely the experts in their business and their organizations. And so sometimes there is nuance in how we talk about it or introduce it or um, bring some of those ideas into a concept or a conversation. And so we do look to them to help us understand sort of like where, where their organization is in this evolution and not not shock anybody.
0: <laughs> yeah, I like this. Uh, I mean, I love this idea of like letting work marinate enough so that you have time to reflect on, on the work that you're putting into the world. I'm, I'm curious then, does that kind of change... I guess the, the structure of contracts as does it change the length or the, or the duration or kind of the pace of those contracts Yeah, or maybe not contracts is the right word, but what is the, the kind of, the relationships that you have with the clients, the the kind of fee structures?
2: Mm. Well, I mean, there's there's two things, right? There's like, you know, the, the, like you said, like the contract, like, okay, it's a six week program and it's X number of people and here's the the things that we're going to deliver at the end of it. But then there's like, the before and the after. And it's the relationships that we have with them and the ways that we continue to engage with them, right? So like we do a series called Impact by Design and we'll invite our clients into that to talk with us about a topic and and stay informed or we'll, um, we make a point to sort of stay up to speed on their their industries, their emerging trends and and have conversations with them or use them as our trusted advisors, right? Like if we're working on a framework and we want to know if it makes sense, we will go to some of our clients and say like, hey, hey, check this out. Like, can you give us some feedback? So I think there's two things There, are like, one, the shape of the work itself change. And I'd say... I don't know that I've seen it really change too much. Like it's still, you know, structured engagements with an outcome <laughs> with a fee structure, but then there's sort of the the before and after the, the relationship with them and the, the long conversation that we're able to have with them that I think has changed a little bit more.
0: So I guess, how do you, how do you seek out those kinds of, those kinds of clients there? How do you, so you work on three projects with someone and then you can start pushing them in this new direction, but do you, do you say like okay we need to talk to these people because we know that we can mm-hmm. that we can do something for them
2: sometimes they find us so we're lucky that you know some of our clients are already sort of thinking this way and they've come to us because they know that we're also thinking this way but yeah it's it's a matter of trust right like it's it's just a relationship like any other relationship and when you want to sort of deliver criticism or offer a suggestion you have to do it from a place of trust and like they know that we have their best interests at heart. They know that we're going to deliver good work to them that makes them look good. So, like you said, it might be the the third engagement, right? Like or the third time that we work together, and and we sort of have a have a mutual trust at this point. That if we're asking hard questions, we're asking for things, and um, we're doing it from a place of of their best interests.
0: Does that Does that increase their actual participation in the design process? Like, as you're doing research, are they? are the clients more involved and more interested or are they still kind of hands off in that, in that process? Or I'm just, I'm just kind of curious. I'm curious on like the tactical
1: level change of.
2: Yeah. Like what does it look like to do this work? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think one of the big shifts that we're trying to make and encourage client organizations to make is instead of thinking about outcomes, just in terms of how are you trying to, for instance, increase engagement, of your community of use, thinking about the outcomes for the community of use themselves. So for instance, to what extent does what you're creating, how should it increase the community of use's sense of well-being or their sense of dignity? These are things that traditionally you might not think about at the start of your design process. But by, let's say, setting goals for, you know, hey, it's really important that safety and dignity are outcomes of our product. That then leads to a set of almost design constraints that you can use to evaluate your progress against. Any design that you create, you're able to say, does this design or does this use case help increase or promote a sense of safety or dignity? And that's something that um, as a consulting organization, we can encourage our clients to really check our progress against. And also in-house, this can continue to live on even after we've, let's say, shipped design. As they continue to implement and build out the designs, through development, they can continue to check in the development process against these same criteria. Has what we have implemented, is it increasing dignity for the community of mm-hmm. or not?
2: And I'd say, you know, in terms of collaboration, we, we do ask a lot of our clients, right? Like we are asking them to, you know, knowing that we're probably not the only thing that they're doing, but we often sort of ask them to come along for the ride with us to the extent that they're able to participate in ideation sessions with us, that they're able to sit in on... Um, you know, SME interviews or tests and sort of see firsthand what's happening along the way. I think it just empowers them internally to then be able to have those conversations and and lead it. Like, I think one thing I've seen over the last couple of years is, uh, is a a greater emphasis also on capacity building so along the way we're sort of teaching our clients some of the aspects of human-centered design or what is a right test or uh what are some principles that we might carry forward and as close as they can collaborate with us the more more often they can get out of it too right
1: yep and i'm sure this is something you've heard across consultancies but eventually our work we have impact through our work if it lives on and at the end of the day a lot of times you know we try to not throw things over their wall Um, and try to present it and share it in ways that the client can continue to work with it and use with it. But ultimately, it succeeds if they continue to champion it within their organization or they take our designs and implement them and deliver them. So having them along for the responsible design journey is really important to making sure that the impact uh, makes its way through.
0: Keeping that torch lit and then passing it on to them as as they're running with you is really important. I'm I'm kind of curious then on your side, how do you teach your your staff, your team members to kind of act out of this broader, I guess humanist approach to design, not just not just what's the coolest, flashiest, trendiest thing? Not necessarily that you do that work, but I'm curious how how do you then encourage the designers on staff t- to
1: grow in those directions? I feel like as human centered design continues to evolve it's really drawing inspiration from community engagement to where i feel like ultimately the more inclusive your design practices the more you shift power away from a certain few people um, who might be you know a product owner at an organization and shift it towards your community of use regardless of what you're designing for so you know if it is if you're creating an ar map Let's say that. Um, To what extent do people of different backgrounds are they dictating the direction of the product? The more that you can shift decision making to communities and people who actually will be impacted by something, um, I think the more that you're able to be humanist. Um, Because fundamentally being humanist, I think is, you know, letting people do what they what they want and what they need to. And so the more you can shift that spectrum to where the power is shared in decision making and how a product is shaped. Um, I think the more Mm -hmm. humanistic it is. I mean,
2: I was going to say internally, I think we're lucky that all of our practitioners want to be doing this work, right? Like they want to be having these conversations with our clients and thinking about these big problems that we get to design for from a responsible ethical lens. And so internally, it's just about giving them opportunities to have those conversations and arming them with frameworks and tools and examples to be able to to talk about it with our client but i think you know we have we have like a, an army of evangelists that that part is easy
0: <laughs> the space that you're that you work out of yeah. i'm curious how
2: my house <laughs> no well i guess
0: i mean both sides of that right both sides <laughs> I mean, recently the Artifact Studio went from renting to building out their own space, yeah. and mm-hmm. and that's that was a very intentional creation of different types of rooms or different
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, different types of spaces, D- different vibes, for, for yeah. lack of yeah. a better word. You took a lot of effort to do that, and I've been in it, and it shows. And you can you can definitely have different intents in each one of those spaces. Does just now working from home kind of change what you view the office as? Or are you going to go back to it and use it in a different way? Those are great questions.
2: Yeah, I mean, so our space... For March was used all the time. We have a really big, beautiful cafe area that we opened up to community groups for meetings. We hosted workshops. Uh, we partnered a lot with groups like AIGA to make the space available. It was something that was really important to us. And so, I think internally, we've had a lot of conversations about how do you build community in a virtual way, right? I mean, there are conversations we're even having with our clients, but but it's not a one-for-one. One. You can't take the the experience of a analog event and allow for those like serendipitous moments in the hallway or those, you know, sort of like magical conversations when you're waiting for a beer. It's not the same thing at a virtual event. <laughs> so we've been been trying to figure that out for ourselves. And then I think, yeah, that nothing is said it set in stone. But I I think the way we work has profoundly changed. We have seen that it's possible to be remote. We've even, you know, we've we've conducted remote workshops and remote presentations and remote ideation sessions and we've built up those muscles and those tools and so so not to say like we don't all want a moment when we're going to be back together again but I don't know that a large beautiful space is going to be what we need in two years it's it's a big question right like I mean sort of on a more meta level like what happens to downtowns what happens to offices what happens (laughs) to business cores and I think we're probably part of that conversation to a degree
0: it's kind of, it's separate where we right. have physically shifted away, but we're still doing the same work in a different set of tools. Yeah. Do, do you think the physical space does have an impact?
2: Yeah. I mean, if you're, yeah. So I'd say if you're asking me, yes. Right. But like, I'm, I'm the person in the office that goes from multiple meetings. I want FaceTime with people. I want the. The serendipity of seeing something on a whiteboard and asking what that is and learning about a project team. So I think it's probably a little bit different for each discipline too. Who's going to say that there's any substitute for being in a room with someone and having a conversation with them and, and seeing their face and their energy and being able to like physically collaborate together. So yes, I think there's still, still need for that.
1: I do think in terms of collaboration, I feel like the pandemic has obviously hurt, uh, but it's also helped in some regards. I would say there will always be a place for meeting in person for really important junctures of your project where you can really, to Tessa's point, flush it out with someone, um, really understand and dive into a program and work shoulder to shoulder. I think that there will always be room Mm -hmm. for that. At the same time, I feel like all of our clients now are very familiar with remote whiteboarding technology, as I'm sure the whole world is. Mm -hmm. And so I think (laughs) it's really made it easier to collaborate on a day-to-day basis because everyone is comfortable using digital whiteboard software now. And so for day-to-day tasks, uh, that collaboration is actually working much more smoothly. And I think um, in relation to remote collaboration, I think Remote collaboration works when everyone is remote, but whenever only some of the people are remote, that becomes a challenge because there might be impromptu meetings in person that people who are remote might be excluded from. And so that will be one thing to solve for, a key challenge to solve for as we transition back. Because I think a lot of people, for a lot of um, folks, perhaps folks with young children, for instance, it is easier to work remotely because then you can be with your child. Or um, you want so to get away? Definitely. From <laughs> or you want to get away from them? You want to go back to the office? So I think there's definitely pros and cons. I'm just,
0: I'm, I'm still just imagining the war rooms that you guys have, where yeah, just every wall is whiteboard. I'm very yeah. jealous of yeah. those.
2: They're beautiful, and you know, it's you know, a miro board is not a substitute. It's not it's, quite the same. Um, it, you know, it's 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 not thinking about the one for one. It's not like we're taking a beautiful three-sided whiteboarded room and the ability to move things around physically and translating it to a mirror board, but the mirror board is working, right? Like we are able to get our work done that way. And it's just a different way of doing it. Yeah. I think it's just try not to think of it as a substitute. Think of it as something different. (laughs) That's right.
0: That's right. So how do you how do you balance kind of the tension of creating this well-oiled creative environment with kind of the the business that it takes to support that environment and where where are the trade-offs that you're I guess starting to see but also maybe have have seen leading up into the pandemic?
2: You know, I think we've been lucky. We've even I mean long before the pandemic, I've been parts of conversations where we've agreed not to work with certain clients because we don't want to be contributing to their industries, or we don't believe in sort of the future that they're building. And so that's a trade. That's a, that's a real tangible business trade-off, right? Like we're presented with an opportunity that's money and time. And we say no to it because it doesn't align with our values. And those are complex conversations that we have internally, because I think there's a gray area, right? Like we also want to engage with clients that are on the beginning of this journey and that we can go on the journey with them. You know, if we're if we're only working with the Patagonias of the world, there's only so much influence you can have when that company is already far, far on their journey. But in terms of business trade-offs, yeah, we've we've made those calls for us, and it's you know saying goodbye to potential revenue. But I think it's it's what aligns with our our ethics. Uh,
0: there there are ethical issues around what projects you actually take on or don't, and and you just steer clear of things. But I'm curious, you know, where as far as as far as leadership in promoting certain lines of thinking or speaking at conferences, be them remote or in person. Uh, is that, is that a part of the studio culture that you use to kind of expand your influence?
2: Sure. Felix just had a piece published. He could talk to this.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think I've been fortunate to attend and present at multiple conferences and I think conferences are a really great opportunity for exchange ideally. I think as a presenter, you're able to communicate your point of view. I think for us, we're able to share our perspectives on responsible and inclusive design and really engage community in terms Mm -hmm. of design on how to advance the practices of responsible and inclusive design. I also think it's a really great opportunity to learn from what others are thinking. Um, It's a way for us Mm -hmm. to collectively build our practices. And I think the benefit of remote conferences, Mm -hmm. although it can be harder to socialize, that's definitely been a challenge in the past year. But I think one of the benefits of remote conferences is that it lowers the cost for entry. And also, because the conferences are now digital, um, you're able to have a much wider range of participants. So, for instance, at Seattle Design Festival this year, which we hosted a yeah. um, um, sort of a session, we were able to have participants all the way from India and Peru join us. And that's something that potentially wouldn't have happened in previous years when. Seattle design Festival was in person so there's been a positive to that um, but I think overall I think um, it's still been a great opportunity for us to both share and learn from community
2: but yeah I would say you know we're not out there marketing ourselves putting banner ads on things offering promotions for work with us so so the way that people find us is either you know word of mouth like, a referral from a client or by seeing us as a as a thought leader in the in the industry, if that's a piece in Forbes or HBR or a panel discussion at a conference somewhere. So that's really sort of the the thrust, I would say, of a lot of our marketing, quote unquote, is just putting our ideas out there and making sure that our clients and potential clients know what we're thinking about and how we're thinking about it.
0: In relation then to in house groups, are you are you always partnering with them or or Are you competing with them on some level or what is what is that relationship?
2: Yes. And Uh, so so I'd say all different ways. Oftentimes we partner with in-house teams. I'd say that's the majority of our interactions with them. Occasionally we'll sort of come in when in-house teams are stretched really thin, almost augment them. So so take off a discrete piece of work a journey or a task or a scenario for them but rarely are we competing with them it's not like we're coming up against in-house teams in an RFP let's say they are our partners in this they're the ones that are bringing us into the work it's just you know sometimes a matter of if we're working with them or we're working near them
0: <laughs> i'm curious about the kind of internal projects that you have spun up just, just in, I guess, in-house to the agency itself. Uh, Were either of you involved in the 10,000 feet product? That
2: was before my time. That was before my as well. Uh, But I could talk about it. Yeah. I mean, so, so the origin story is really that we were looking for a tool to do exactly what 10,000 feet does and it didn't exist. And as product designers, the, the answer that they came up with was let's make our own.
1: I think um, Tesla for context for people who might not know what it is. Um, do you have like a one minute snapshot? Good
2: call. Yes. So, ten thousand feet feet is a sort of organizational resourcing, trafficking, planning tool with uh, an emphasis on sort of understanding capacity for each person. Your you know your workload. What's coming up? Imagine a traffic manager at Amazon or Facebook using it to just really sort of understand where their teams are at and what's possible. And so it was really intended to be a solution for ourselves, but I think a little bit also the experiment of what is it like to make a product, right? Like if we say that we can go to our clients and help them conceive of and build and launch products, we need to be able to say that we've done it ourselves. There's that credibility piece there. You know, I think as an organization, we're super lucky it it actually worked. It was (laughs) a tool that people wanted to use and then got, got sold last year. So, um, you know, full cycle, like our, our, our organization has really sort of seen ten thousand feet from from birth to launch. Uh,
0: have you have you kind of seen like the 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 number of in house groups, at least in the Seattle area, as as they grow and more companies come in here, uh, has that affected artifacts specifically, or or do you kind of you're still you're you're looking much broader than the specific Seattle market? That's a great
1: question. I would say it really varies by the specific organization. I I do agree that we have seen a lot of in-house groups become much more mature in how they practice design and the number of designers they have, for instance, which has both positives and potential drawbacks. So the positive is when you have a lot of designers at an organization, they all really understand the importance of design, and it is much more likely that the rest of the organization does as well. So that creates opportunities for design services. A lot of times, if let's say they have a very large team, they can take on that work themselves. And so as a consultancy, a lot of times our role will shift more to potentially supporting or advising the in-house design team and also helping build their capacity in areas where they might not have as strong capacity or maturity yet, such as in a practice like responsible or inclusive design. Mm -hmm.
2: But I'd say yeah. There's there's no doubt that like sort of the in-house world here in Seattle has grown over the last couple of years. I mean, it's irrefutable. But I don't I don't think it's been a bad thing for us. Like Felix says, rising tide floats all boats. So if there's greater design maturity, if there are more people who understand the power of design, that's good for us.
0: I'm I'm kind of curious on on. Mm-hmm. I guess your own staffing. Then, in relation to that, what what are your kind of talent recruitment uh, ideologies? And then also, are you are you seeking out work that you don't quite have the people mm. for, but mm-hmm. you're kind mm-hmm. of bringing those people in as you're landing something? Or do you know you know the skill set that you have already, and mm-hmm. th- those are the projects that you're you're pitching on?
2: I mean, I'd say at our core, we are pitching, pursuing, winning work. That we know we're gonna do a good job at. That doesn't mean two things. So, one, I think there's always the opportunity for folk, for practitioners to learn, right? And we wanna make sure that we're offering up projects and opportunities for people to potentially learn a new skill set or stretch themselves in some way or try something new and grow in their career. There are also instances when there's really, really, really specialized skill sets, right, that don't make sense to have in-house full time. So like we need a 3D artist who can do X, Y, and Z. And for instances like that, we do have a really small stable of sort of trusted contractors essentially that we will go to 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 augment a program when we do that we're always really upfront with our clients about that but typically it's never a problem but for us it just means that we can be a little bit more generalist in house and still have the ability to fulfill these potentially more specialized programs or components of programs when they come up so in context in house we are researchers strategists and then UX designers and visual designers i'd, I'd say i mean those are Broad categories, right? But that's sort of what you we would say we have
0: on staff. How do you view design education specifically within mm. the kind of graphic design or industrial design or interaction design? What are What are your thoughts on on certification of design work? Or I, I'm I'm curious because part part of the industry is relatively certified, and then half of the industry, you know, there's people who, who don't technically have formal education but are operating at the highest levels of, of studios or, or in-house groups across the, across the industry. Where do you personally see that as important?
1: Well, I'm probably biased because I come from a psychology background and wheedled my way into a design career. But I feel that because design is such a multidisciplinary practice, and it can really be applied to any area in life, essentially, I think that coming from different backgrounds really makes you a more effective designer. And so I don't think necessarily where you go to school should dictate whether you can become a designer or not.
2: Sure. I mean, I have an undergraduate degree in gender studies. Like what does that have to do with working in a product design firm? Except that I think... Maybe along the way, it, it taught me like some, some ways to look at the world, right? Like some, some interesting ways to question things or um, be really sensitive to certain ideas. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think a multitude of experiences is always valuable.
0: Do you encourage people then to go to for-profit schools if they need hmm. to learn a certain skill set or, or just to, just to continue learning?
2: No, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say we like encourage any one specific kind of of education or like credential or degree. I think for us, when we're looking at talent, it's a lot more about sort of the mindset that they take when they do the work and, and the quality of the work, like the craft, as, as Felix was saying. And I think, you know, you can learn craft at school. You can learn craft on the job. You can learn craft from your mentors along the way. It, it's one way to learn craft, but I don't, I don't know that we would necessarily like prioritize a, a certificate over anybody else.
0: Where do you see the studio and yourselves kind of headed in five kind of next 5 to 10 years? And how do you like how do you document and archive what you've done? Both both from a personal level and from a from a studio level. You know, how do you, how do you save your work?
2: Yeah. So real tactically, we have an in-house tool. That's our portfolio site. And when we wrap up programs, we give folks on the program a day or two to sort of think about writing it all up and synthesizing it. So we have a set of questions. It's, who is your client? What did they come to us? What did you do? What were the outcomes? What are some things you learned along the way? Um, what are some quotes from that client? What are some, you know, sort of high resolution artifacts that came out of that work? So we do, we're lucky. Like I've worked in a lot of of different studios in town, and not everyone has this like really deep archive online of of work that all follows the same same template almost over and over again. So I think that's really tactically right. Like that's just how do you not lose it because there's institutional knowledge that comes with it too. That's sort of the past. Like like that's how how are you archiving your past essentially? But then it's like where are you going with it? And I I would hope that in five years we we have seen that our portfolio is sort of overwhelmingly responsible design focused. And and I think that definition is going to change for us over the next couple of years too. I think for for artifact that would feel like success in 5
1: years. I think also hopefully everyone has received a vaccine at that point and we're able to be together in person.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yes, that too.
1: Nice.
0: What, is, what does a successful design studio look like to you? I mean, are, are, you, are you pushing yourself toward a goal that you think Artifact is going to, to reach, or have you kind of have you, have you completed half of that set of goals already?
2: Mission accomplished. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just go home.
2: I don't know. I mean I think as a studio, we have ideas about the kind of work that we want to do and the kind of impact that we want to have and the world and the kind of people that we want to be doing it with but there's no there's no master plan there's no like you know five year dear diary every day i got one step closer and i i checked this thing off the list i think it's it's partly sort of through our own thinking and our convictions about the kind of work that we want to be doing and then also listening to our clients and the industries that we work in and trying to pay attention to what's happening there and respond to it, like get ahead of it and make sure that we are relevant, <laughs> that we're participating in, in those sort of futures that they're designing.
1: I think success for me on a personal level is really on an everyday basis. Am I enjoying the work I'm doing with my teammates, with my partners? Are we really thinking through some interesting and challenging problems? And are we really engaging the community of use in what we create and Doing something that helps them really drive agency in their lives.
2: Yeah. I mean, can I go to bed at night feeling really good about the clients I worked
1: on, right?
2: That That's important to me.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for joining me today.
2: Thank you so much for having us.
1: Well, thank you so much for having us. For more, go to
0: seattlecreative.directory.